This is Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. Mary Tillman says she still doesn't have the full story of how her son died. Pat Tillman had been an NFL football star, but after the 9-11 attacks, he put his lucrative career aside and, with his brother Kevin, joined the U.S. Army. In April of 2004, Pat Tillman was an Army Ranger in Afghanistan, where he was shot and killed. Initially, the Army couched Pat Tillman's death in heroic terms. It told his family and the U.S. public that he was caught in an enemy ambush. The truth was that American bullets killed him. The Pentagon knew that, but waited five weeks before disclosing that it had been so-called friendly fire. Four years later, after several investigations and two congressional hearings, Mary Tillman still wonders what actually happened to her son and why the government covered it up. She writes about it all in her new book, Boots on the Ground by Dusk, My Tribute to Pat Tillman. She spoke about her son's story at the Commonwealth Club of California last month, and it's her talk there that we'll hear this hour on Word for Word. Mary Tillman began by reading an excerpt from her book. It provides a family backdrop for her son's story. I hung up feeling overwhelmed, but unable to move or cry. I began to wonder what my father would think if he were alive. Like Mike and me, I knew he would be proud of Pat and Kevin for wanting to serve their country. Yet I wondered whether he would share my doubts about the administration. Thirty-five years ago, he and I had been at odds over the Vietnam War. He died before seeing the outcome of that involvement. Would he have encouraged Pat and Kevin, or would he have feared, as I did now, that our family had glamorized the honor of military service. Discussions about the military had been part of the boys' childhood, why people fight for their country, why they should, when it is right to do so. The effect of war on people, how it crushes them tragically or enables them to do heroic things. At dinner time and at holiday gatherings, our conversations had often turned to the military and its place in history, and in our family. My sons were influenced by these stories and of our family's military past. My younger brothers, Richard and Mike, and I inherited an appreciation of history from many relatives, but our fascination with military history came directly from my father, Richard M. Spaulding, who had served as a Marine in the Korean War, and from my mother's brother, John Conlon, who had served in World War II and the Korean War, and then the National Guard. I'd majored in history at San Jose State University, and my ex-husband, Patrick, who was an economics major, had also studied history. My interest in military history, particularly the Civil War, developed during my frequent childhood visits to Gettysburg National Park in the mid-1960s. I was 10 to 12 years old when we lived in New Cumberland, Pennsylvania, less than 40 miles away from the historic battlefield. My father and mother took my brothers and me there nearly every weekend. With great poignancy, Dad would make the history of that war come alive for us. We could picture the Confederate troops advancing down the Chambersburg Pike on July 1, 1863, the first day of the battle, and those Southern forces charging the Union position on the third day. To help us understand the tragedy of the valiant but futile Pickett's Charge, Dad told us the story of the encounter at Cemetery Ridge on July 3, 1863, between Confederate Brigadier General Louis Armistead and Union troops led by Major General Winfield Scott Hancock. These two men had met and became friends at West Point and served together in the same infantry in California before the Civil War. Armistead was wounded on Cemetery Ridge. He asked if he could see his adversary and once good friend, General Hancock, but was told Hancock had been wounded just minutes earlier. Although Armistead's wounds had not appeared to be life-threatening, he died the morning of July 5th in a Union field hospital. It was haunting to know that these two friends had fought against each other. Both had been wounded in the same skirmish, and one had died. We often had picnics on a knoll between Little Round Top and Devil's Den and dangled our feet in a creek near Spangler's Spring. 
My father bought us Confederate and Union hats that we wore as we ran through the fields, climbing rocks and trees in the vast historical park. The statues, monuments, and cannons that memorialized the soldiers who fought there demanded reverence. And Dad made it very clear that climbing on the monuments was disrespectful. But sometimes we forgot ourselves, and Dad would catch us and get angry. I vividly remember being yanked firmly from an equestrian statue of Major General John Sedgwick and feeling ashamed and embarrassed. The museums, the cemetery, and the home of Ginny Wade, the only civilian to be killed at the Battle of Gettysburg, fascinated me. My ghoulish little brothers were particularly intrigued by the replica field hospital, where bloody wax arms and legs were thrown into a barrel by a window. They referred to it as the Arms and Legs Museum. My father earnestly and patiently talked to us about battles, strategies, and tactics. I remember him telling us that prior to the Battle of Gettysburg, Robert E. Lee often had split his troops into sections. He did it out of necessity, and he got away with it because of the incompetence of northern generals. However, my father cautioned that it was never a good idea to do that because troops can lose communication with one another, resulting in confusion and chaos. During the time we visited Gettysburg, former President Dwight David Eisenhower was living at his Gettysburg home. We once walked into the Gettysburg Library and saw him sitting at a table reading. I remember being in awe of this honored and respected World War II general, even though he was by then a frail old man. From 1944 through 1945, Eisenhower had been responsible for planning and directing the successful invasion of France and Germany by Allied forces, and still he cautioned against governments using military strength and resources to achieve political and, economic, and, pardon me, and commercial gain. As children, we played military games while visiting my Uncle John. I knew that during World War II, he had been the last soldier to parachute safely out of a, a crashing plane, and he had been so shaken by that experience that he never boarded another plane once he got out of the military. Uncle John had no children of his own, so his nieces and nephews were like his kids. Often when we would visit him in Nork, Ohio, he would set up his military tent for us in the backyard in the summer and in the living room in the winter. We would sit in the tent eating army rations, which were pretty terrible, and garlic popcorn. While Uncle John rarely spoke to us of his military experiences, he would take us to military cemeteries and army bases. Once when he and my grandmother visited us in Nyack, New York, they took me to West Point. I was only three years old, but I still remember the ornate swords and rifles displayed behind glass in one of the buildings. My parents took my brothers and me back to West Point when I was 13 and living in Tenafly, New Jersey. The statues and buildings were old, formidable, and impressive. I didn't notice the plebes my first visit to the campus, but 10 years later, they were the main attraction. Military service was part of the life of my husband's family as well, which of course became familiar to my sons. Their paternal grandfather, Hank Tillman, and two great uncles had served in the Navy, and all were stationed at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed by the Japanese. All three survived. My father-in-law did not talk about his painful wartime experiences, but he occasionally spoke of the fun times and camaraderie. I found his stories fascinating. One New Year's Eve, my husband, Patrick, and I went to a party and left two-month-old Pat with my in-laws. After several hours, I left the party to go feed the baby, intending to return before midnight to celebrate the new year. But I ended up talking with my mother-in-law, Mary, my, youngest, my husband's youngest brother, David, and Hank, who started telling stories about hitchhiking, drinking, and just hanging out with his Navy buddies. My dad, like my father-in-law, didn't talk much about the specifics of military service or any horrors he might have seen. It wasn't until after he died that I learned his best friend had been blown up by a landmine just yards in front of him. When he talked about the Marines, he talked about friendships, drinking and brawling in seedy bars, hitchhiking from town to town, being stationed on the USS New Jersey, swimming with dolphins in the, in the Pacific Ocean, and boot camp. Dad had been stationed at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, with a wistful expression 
He would recall how he and his fellow Marines had to run miles along the beach on the thick sand in their combat boots. The exercise was grueling and the drill sergeants merciless. Yet when the drill was over, even though they all complained and grumbled, everyone who completed it experienced a sense of achievement and solidarity. My brothers liked the story my dad told of a group of Marines maneuvering under barbed wire on their bellies as they were being shot at with live rounds. One Marine kept sticking his butt in the air. The drill instructors continually yelled at him to get it down, but he continued to jut it out until it took a bullet. The guy was out of commission for weeks, but he had a great time holding court in the infirmary. To this day, I wonder if that story is true. From the time I was very little, I was aware of my father's pride in being a Marine. When I was three years old, in the days before, the ch before children's car seats, I would stand between my parents, feet digging into the soft leather of the big front seat, and sing the entire Marine Corps hymn at the top of my lungs. From the halls of Montezuma, my father would sing with me. My brother Richard served in the Marines in the late 70s, and my brother-in-law Jim served in the Army around the same time. Military service was prevalent in my family and my husband's family, and we were taught to respect it. The 1960s and 70s produced good war movies, and I saw most of them. Battle of the Bulge, The Great Escape, Patton, The Devil's Brigade, The Dirty Dozen, A Bridge Too Far, and many more. When my boys were old enough, my husband and I shared these old films with them, and we also watched and discussed contemporary war movies, Platoon, Apocalypse Now, Good Morning Vietnam, and The Thin Red Line. We talked about how war best exemplifies the camaraderie of men, especially when in battle, and puts people in positions to think about what they value, making them put their integrity on the line. The subject fascinated me. I had always believed that war brings out the best and the worst in people. This belief would come to dominate my life in a way I never would have imagined at the time. My own thoughts about war evolved over the years. The United States' involvement in Vietnam had begun before I was born. By the time I was 13, I already felt very conflicted about it. My father supported our presence there and believed we were doing the right thing. I loved and respected my dad, so I was deeply influenced by his opinions. But I had teachers I also respected who were telling me our involvement in Southeast Asia was wrong. By the time I was in high school, I had decided that Vietnam was not at all a moral war and we didn't belong there. I got into an argument with my father about it. I'd never shouted at him before, and I remember becoming very angry and running out of the room in tears. After that, we never spoke about Vietnam again. Looking back, I can understand the conflict he must have felt. The senseless destruction, loss of life, and government deception clashed with his belief that ours is a righteous country. The first Gulf War started when Pat and Kevin were in their early teens and Richard was 10. I felt it was an unjust war. As with Vietnam, we had not been attacked, nor had we been threatened. A motivating factor was oil, and I believed it was unacceptable, outrageous, and inhumane to put lives on the line in a fight over oil. I also was appalled when President George H.W. Bush told the people of Iraq to rise up against Saddam Hussein, and then backed out, leaving the Kurds to be slaughtered by Hussein's men. No one knew what was going to happen in the region. I wondered at the time if tensions there would escalate due to our involvement. My sons were getting closer to draft age by then. There might come a time when the draft would be reinstated and they would be called. Because we had talked so much with the boys about the honor of military service, I wanted them to understand that this was not the kind of war to get into. I did not glorify this war. The briefings to the public by Generals Norman Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell did not stress the serious nature of what was happening, and it disturbed me that the daily visuals from the war zone looked like video games. My son spoke of the war as cool. They had trouble understanding that people were dying. My husband and I would remind them, you're not seeing the death there. Curled up on my couch, securing the blanket over my shoulders, I recoil. All of those discussions of the military and the honor of serving come back to haunt me. Through tear-filled eyes, I look out the picture window into the darkness.
Mary Tillman, reading an excerpt from her book, Boots on the Ground by Dusk, my tribute to Pat Tillman. Army Ranger and NFL star Pat Tillman was killed by fire from his own troops in Afghanistan four years ago. He and his brother Kevin had joined the Army after 9-11. Back now on Word for Word to Mary Tillman speaking at the Commonwealth Club of California this spring. The reason I chose this passage, well, there's actually two reasons. I always found it to be so ironic that my father spoke all the time about splitting troops and how you shouldn't split troops, and yet it was ultimately because the commanding officers at the Tactical Operations Center split the troops is the reason, you know, Pat was killed. Um, that was, that's one reason I read that passage. The other reason is because what I have found since Pat's death is that the Gold Star families that I've met, all of them have a similar thread. You know, the, 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 the raising, being raised to respect the military, to respect service to country. And I think that that's um, very important to remember, that these young people, they enlist to serve their country, to do an honorable thing. And this um, leadership that, that, that we have had in the last eight years has not respected that. And I, that's not to say that um, other administrations have not been deceitful. Because certainly they have. But I think that I think we are all kind of shocked about the lies and deceptions that we've been fed in the last eight years. Um, it's almost to the point where we're numb to it. Um, our family has had a lot of people say to us, and well-meaning sometimes, you know, well, just get over it, you know? I mean, it's, it's friendly fire. Friendly fire happens. Um, well, we're very aware that friendly fire happens. And initially, when we learned that it was a fratricide or a friendly fire situation, uh, we were extremely saddened. It's very tragic. I mean, Pat was always a, a team player. And for him to be killed by his own men had a, had a, a special sickening feeling about it. But um, when we learned that it was more than just an errant bullet and an accident and that it seemed as though things were being covered up, then it took on a whole other horrific feeling. And so we decided that we needed to look further into it. But um, one of the things that I would like very much to stress is that in Pat's case, um, he and Kevin spoke very often before they enlisted, I guess. They told me they talked about um, losing their voice, giving up their voice. That when you serve the military, you, you have to realize that that's what you're doing. And they were not naive to that. They also gave up control of their lives. And for long stretches of time, they gave up family and friends. And that's what all soldiers give up. And a lot of people have asked, you know, why did Pat give up so much? How could he give up so much money and so much attention and fame? But in his mind, he was a very confident person. And I believe he felt that, you know, he'd serve his time. He'd probably go back and play football if that didn't work out. He'd, you know, he was a, he was a good student. He felt that he would probably find a, a niche that would make, allow him to continue to be comfortable. I don't think that bothered him. But he also felt that he was, the sacrifices that he was making were no different than the sacrifices the other soldiers were making because those were universal sacrifices. Um, and I think that that's really important for us to think about because when they lose their voice, we become their voice. The public is the voice for those soldiers. And when we stop being vigilant with our government, then that's very dangerous. Then our, then our administration and our military takes advantage of our troops, and that's what they're doing. They're being sent on multiple deployments, extended deployments. They're coming back with much more serious mental and emotional problems, not to mention the wounds and, of course, the dead. So I think that, you know, it's something we really need to think about, especially as we're coming on this election and, you know, we're going to find uh, ourselves voting for a new leader um, we really need to think about that. And sadly, in 2001, our president told us to go to the mall. He didn't tell us, you know, that we had a responsibility to serve in some way. But I think he told us to go to the mall because he wanted us to pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And it worked. 
You know, it seriously worked. Many people went about their lives, went to the mall, and you can't, you can't really blame anybody because it's expensive to live. It takes a lot. So people get caught up and preoccupied and their, you know, their credit cards are going up and they're one house payment away from losing their house if they don't keep it up. So, you know, people don't have time to, to look at the progressive media and go beyond the mainstream media to find out what's going on. But I think that, you know, we're going to have to start doing that. It's really, you know, very important. So anyway, that's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book. I'm hoping that that is stressed in here in these pages. The other reason was because Pat's certainly not the only soldier whose family has been lied to. There's examples of seven fam or pardon me, six families in the book, and there's many more than that. And of course, the other reason was just to give people a little glimpse, a small glimpse of Pat from my point of view. I mean, mothers only know this much about their child, and thank God they think the mom only knows this much about them. <laughs> But um, I just, you know, so, so much of what's been written about Pat is sort of like a caricature. And actually, he's got his old assistant principal sitting in the room right now, and she knew what an ordinary person he was as a kid. And uh, several teachers that may have not had him in class, but certainly heard the rumors about him. Um, he was not a perfect being. <laughs> But he was, he was a delightful guy. Um, he, he had struggles like all people. You know, he struggled against this macho thing versus the big heart that he carried inside. And, you know, sometimes that, that macho behavior got him in some trouble. Um, but he really did have a big heart. He was a very honest guy. He was, had lots of integrity. Um, and he loved his family and friends more than anything. And uh, we really miss him. But he's an example of just one person. This book is describing just one person that has died when there's thousands others, and not to mention the hundreds and thousands of Iraqis that have, that have suffered and Afghanis that have suffered in, in these two conflicts or occupation. Mary Tillman, mother of NFL star and Army Ranger Pat Tillman, who died four years ago in Afghanistan. Although the Pentagon knew he was killed by his fellow Army Ranger comrades, the Army initially told the family that Pat Tillman died heroically in an enemy ambush. Mary Tillman writes of the circumstances of her son's death in Boots on the Ground by Dusk, my tribute to Pat Tillman. She spoke about the case and cover-up during a May appearance at the Commonwealth Club of California. You're hearing her on Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Penn Cava. Mrs. Tillman also took questions from the audience and moderator John Diaz, the editorial page editor for the San Francisco Chronicle. Mary, are you now satisfied that the government has provided you accurately and completely all the relevant information concerning the circumstances of Pat's death? Well, no, not really, but I don't think we're going to really have much success getting any more information. I think we're pretty satisfied at this point. Um, that Pat was killed by accident. Because I don't know how many of you have actually read the book or have read in newspaper articles with regard to Pat's situation, but there were, there were periods of time in the last four years that we were concerned that he may have been killed on purpose just because of the nature of the things that were covered up. But I think we've kind of come to terms that that's not the case and that this was a case of soldiers um, basically being in a lust to fight. They had come out of a very dangerous kill zone um, and by the time they got out of there, I think they were not feeling afraid anymore. It was just the opposite, and, but they were pumped up with adrenaline, and I think they just started shooting very wildly. Not only did they kill Pat and an Afghan militia soldier who was fighting alongside of him, um, they, they, killed, or they wounded two of their soldiers, their platoon leader and the radio operator, but it, they also could have killed many other, or wounded many other soldiers on the ridgeline. There were numbers of soldiers on the ridgeline waving their arms, screaming ceasefire, um, and they just, for some reason, didn't stop. They admitted in their testimony they saw arms waving when one of the generals asked, um, what did it look like they were trying to signal? And they said, hey, it's us. But they shot them anyway. One of the soldiers was asked, did you positively identify your target? And he said, no, I wanted to be in a firefight. In fact, they were shooting so wildly, they nearly shot the soldiers in the vehicle behind them as they were coming out of the canyon. So this was not um, a fog of war, as the Army keeps telling the public. 
This was, this was absolute gross negligence. The first investigative officer, Captain Scott, said that um, he believed there was gross negligence, that there should be a criminal investigation. That investigation was taken away from him and given to someone at a higher level, which he thought was because it was such an atrocious situation. But in fact, when it got to the higher level, the colonel that took over the investigation allowed soldiers to change their statements. This is a follow-up to, um, to that, and that is, uh, audience member asks, how come no one has been held accountable for any of this? Well, that's a very good question. No one has really been held accountable. The soldiers in the vehicle, um, hopefully, are, I mean, I'm hoping they, they contemplate what happened, and hopefully they, they feel some guilt, uh, you know, for what happened. Um, they're young, and I've never been in a, in a situation like this. And so our family's trying really hard to look past that um, you know, action wasn't taken immediately, and I think it should have been. Um, but I don't think that at this point to go back and, you know, disrupt these young men's lives at this point would do much good. But I do believe that the whoever is responsible for lying and covering up and embellishing Pat's death and deceiving the public and trying to use Pat as a propaganda tool, those people need to be held accountable. And I think that... The main reason they're not is because the people that are in power that have the authority to do that are afraid to. They don't have the courage to do it. Um, and I think that's really sad. I can't believe how your responses are, tr- are tracking with the next question because this one goes to um, culpability and accountability. It says, the unfortunate story about Pat, the deceit, the lies from the highest levels of the Pentagon could not have been released without the specific approval of Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. Do you agree with that? And have you contemplated legal action? I absolutely agree with that. Um, We haven't discussed legal action, and I'll tell you why. (laughs) Our family had decided that we we didn't want to take this to courts. We wanted to, to see if the system itself that is actually constructed to have the checks and balances would actually do its job. Um... These soldiers are dying for this system, and it should work. And we felt if we got it to work that that Pat wouldn't have died in vain, and these soldiers are not dying in vain. And last spring we had some high hopes because the um, oversight committee, the Congressional Oversight Committee led by Representative Henry Waxman and Minority Leader Tom Davis, um, they deemed that there was indeed a cover-up in Pat's death. So we were so validated by that. But there has still been no accountability and one of the reasons is, is that, you know, this administration doesn't leave any paper trails anywhere. Um, they ceased using emails. And, you know, Donald Rumsfeld was notorious for his snowflake memos. You know, he didn't use um, email very much. So they can't really trace anything. And, of course, people in the White House are not talking uh, on the record. Mary, uh, one of our audience members asked, did Pat's buddies speak the truth immediately after the false news came out? Uh, were they silenced in some way? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question also. Actually, I think the soldiers initially weren't trying to cover up anything. Um, but then gradually, you know, the officers get involved. And I think that not only did the officers get involved, but I think as the, whoever asked the, the last question, I think the administration got involved with it. Um, I, I should have answered the first, very first part of that question, but it, it'll fit here. Um, one of the reasons that we believe that Rumsfeld had some hand in this cover-up is that he wrote Pat a letter after he enlisted, thanking him for enlisting. It was a very short letter. It was nothing elaborate. But he, he still, clearly, Pat was in his radar. Shockingly, we learned last August at the second congressional hearing that um, former Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld sent a snowflake memo to then-Deputy Secretary of the Army Pete Guerin, who is now the Secretary of the Army. And that memo basically said, this is a very special young man. We need to keep an eye on him. So it's ludicrous to think that when the upper 
tiers of the chain of command found out that Pat was killed by fratricide, which they did learn within 24 to 48 hours, that they would not have told Rumsfeld. If you read anything about him, he's a micromanager. He especially liked to be involved with the military, especially the special ops or the black ops operations. So it would be ludicrous to think that he wasn't told. In fact, heads would have rolled if they didn't tell him that Pat was killed by friendly fire. This was the month of April 2004. He died the week that Abu Ghraib scandal broke. Fallujah was in chaos. Um, You know, the president's approval rating was almost as bad as it is now, and that was the most casualties of the war up to that point. So Pat's death by fratricide was, was, you know, pretty serious for them. In the time that... uh Pat went to Afghanistan. Did he ever express any regret about having enlisted? Well, yeah, he did. He and Kevin both did at times, but they they also in fact, it's interesting. One of the last conversations I had with Pat before he was um, sent over to Afghanistan, we were having coffee um, in a coffee shop in Tacoma, and he said, Mom, the military's made me a better person. It's humbled me. And I told him, well, I think the military's made us all better people. Um, I think when, you know, you have a a loved one in the military, whether it be a son, a daughter, a wife, husband, brother, um, you, you know, you you have to think about what's important. So I think that it humbled all of us. So I think on that level, both of them felt they learned something. They, They learned that they had so much growing up, and some of these kids that enlist have nothing. Um, they learned to be more patient. You know, Pat always had a lot of control in his life, of his life. He was, you know, a very lucky guy. And he didn't have a lot of control once he enlisted. And it was much more of an emotional crucible than anything else. You know, physically it was very easy for him, but emotionally it was really tough. And I think he felt good about himself for, for going through, you know, this process. But at the same time... Um, he was concerned about the administration and going into Iraq. And when he got into Iraq, he and Kevin both were pretty disgusted with what they saw. He said they were running around, and all the soldiers called it looking for unicorns. I mean, they were out looking for weapons of mass destruction, and these rangers were kind of teasing about it, you know, looking for unicorns. And they said that you know, there was no attempt to, you know, try to preserve the infrastructure over there. And so the people of Iraq, you know, they didn't have the, the just basic needs met. And initially when we got there, they said that everybody seemed pretty pleased and to see the U.S. soldiers. But it, it only took a matter of weeks before their attitude started to change. And um, it was very disturbing to them. You mentioned that in your book you also include the stories of about a half dozen other families who have been lied to uh, by the military. More generally, what kind of reaction have you been getting from other military families? Has it been mostly supportive, or there some who have been critical as well? I'm sure there's families that are critical, um, especially the ones that have this feeling that if we were to pull out of Iraq, um, that they're, you know... Some of the soldiers have died in vain. Um, and, you know, how dare you? I mean, I, I, I kind of understand that thinking. But for the most part, families have been really glad that we've taken this stance. Because even though we have not always been lucky enough to have anything, some action taken, um, our voice is heard because Pat gave us a voice. His persona allowed us to have a voice that other families don't have. And so I think that, you know, they are very grateful. We, we have been very um, lucky to have talked to a lot of families, and they are very pleased that we've done this. But I will say, to speak to the notion that if, you know, these soldiers would die in vain, I, I don't agree with that, because I feel like these young people, um, you know, they enlist, and they enlist for honorable reasons. And... If they die, then it's it's honorable. Whether our administration sent them over there to look for unicorns or not, their intentions were good. They're still honorable. But sadly, the other problem here is that sometimes these soldiers are put in situations where they are forced to act less than honorably, and that's damaging them. Um, and that's something that we need to 
you know, to think about. And it's, you know, we have this, this volunteer army, and people aren't enlisting. So that means that the soldiers who are in are being abused, and they're being damaged. And when they come back, they are our responsibility, and we're not taking care of them. And this administration is ignoring them. And that's something we have to all think about and take responsibility for. Okay, audience member asks, you, you have raised two heroes. How can parents raise heroes? What's your advice to parents? Well, I don't, I don't know. That's an awkward question because, you know, they, they were just human. I see, them as, I, I see them as heroes in the way they have lived their lives. And, and just to emphasize the fact that they both have made lots of mistakes and they're not perfect. I'm not up here and I wouldn't pretend to tell anyone how to raise their children. As I said, Pat's assistant principal sitting in the audience. But, um, you know, I just think that you need to keep them, uh, your kids aware of what's going on, you know, around them. And I think it's important to keep them historically aware. But as you could tell from this passage that I read to you, these passages, that I have some guilt for you know, promoting the honor of the military, even though I believe in the honor of the military, I still believe the military is honorable. We do need a military. We were attacked in September. Um, but I think that we just, you know, we need to be very careful the way we use our military. It is a last resort to send our troops abroad. We should never be bombing other populations. Never. And so, um, you know... I can't, I can't say that I know how to raise heroes. I just, um, I, I just can say that I really like my boys. <laughs> That's all I can say. Well, let me just focus the question in a slightly different way. As a parent, I think one of the things we try to teach our children is selflessness and the idea that there are things bigger than themselves. Well, certainly Pat, Pat was in one of the most glamorous and lucrative professions uh, uh, for a young person in this country. I mean, clearly you instilled those values. Yeah, I think that they they do look at life that way. That you know they should look beyond themselves. And and even Pat's foundation, one of the you know the premise of that is leadership through action. Um, don't don't sit on your ass. <laughs> Get up and do something. And that was Pat's motto. Um, and so I think that that is very important. And I even when I was teaching my students, it was sort of I would always remind them. You know, when you're having a bad day, did you ever notice that you're treating people around you like crap? Well, why don't you start treating them better and you maybe feel better about yourself and think go go outside yourself. And so, you know, they kind of, that follows suit. Another parent asking for advice. uh, What kind of advice would you have for other parents who are in this horrible situation where they lose a child in war? Well, if if they've lost a child in in war... um, and they feel they've been lied to like we have been lied to and other families, they need to really contact their congressmen, their senators, their local media. They need to try to find out some answers. Um, Because no soldier's family should be lied to. No family should be treated with that disrespect. Most soldiers that we've talked to have said that they would want their family to know exactly what happened to them. They wouldn't want to be glamorized, that the truth is what they would want. There are a few soldiers who've said that they would rather be portrayed as a hero. That's true. I've heard them say that. Or like they wouldn't want someone to know they were killed by friendly fire, I suppose. But in terms of losing a child in any, in any capacity, be it war or anything else, um, you have to find an outlet, whatever that is. I suppose that doing this has been somewhat of an outlet for me, although it has caused me a lot of frustration. Um, but in the end, I feel like I've done something for Pat. And in writing the book, I feel like I've... I've done something for him, and I've given a gift to my other, my other boys and my daughter-in-law. So, so that's been helpful. But I would suggest to anyone, they have to find some kind of an outlet. You can't let it drag you down. You have to somehow find a way to look at the, the, the child or the husband or whoever it is you lost and, and look at them as a gift that was in your life and you know, try, to, try to live as if they're sitting on your shoulder. Uh, Mary... Um question came from the audience about the evolution of your emotions from the time when you first uh, found out that uh, Pat had, had died to finding out that it was a friendly fire to where you are today. Well, at first you're just 
you're, you're, you know, you're obviously horrified and you're grief-stricken, and then you go through this numb phase. At some point, you know, the anger catches up with you. Um, and and, and I, I think that for some people, it, you know, the, the sequence can be different. My youngest son went straight to angry. Um, he was angry immediately, and he's probably the, the, the most um, accepting of it now. <laughs> Um, he has his rough moments, but I think that he's, he's come to terms with it pretty well. It's been um, much harder, obviously, for Pat's widow and for Kevin. Kevin and Pat were, like, attached at the hip for, you know, 24-7 for two years while they were in the military. And they were very close anyway. And, in fact, he was 15 minutes away from his brother when he was killed. It was very hard for him. But he's, he's doing a lot better and obviously, you know, my, my daughter-in-law, you know, she's kind of, you know, getting um, satisfaction now of running Pat's foundation. So that's been really helpful to her. And my ex-husband is, you know, moving along as well. So we're all doing pretty, pretty well now. Um, at one point, you mentioned a drone. Now, drones uh, do produce digital records. Uh, were you able to have any luck in, in finding out what the drone records may have uh Produced. Well, that's um, interesting because I just received a phone call. The forward observer um, uh, who was there when Pat was killed, he did. He finally t- talked to me. I knew from his statement that, that he said there was a Predator drone overhead when Pat was killed. And I've never been able to locate him. And he finally tracked me down. And he did tell me that, yes, indeed, there was a Predator drone overhead. And he said when he got back to Salerno... Um, after Pat's death, he told some members of the tactical oper- at the Tactical Operations Center what had happened, and they said, yeah, we know, we watched it on the feed. So there definitely was a video. Um, whether they actually captured Pat's death or just the aftermath and got a dr- drift of what happened, he doesn't know. But the military's denying that there's any tape. At the congressional hearing, they, um, you know, they... They talked about trying to find a tape, and they said there isn't one. So I would imagine if there's anything on that tape, that, that, or if there was, it was probably destroyed because they destroyed all the evidence. I mean, Pat's uniform, his body armor, his, you know, everything was destroyed. And even remains that were left behind um, that could have been used as evidence um, were kept at room temperature in a lab in Salerno until... They were no longer any good, and then they were sent to mortuary affairs. Here's a question from an audience member saying, I've read that Pat intended to speak out against the war when he got back, and some anti-war groups are suggesting his death was not an accident. Had he decided to come out against the war? Well, he'd already been against the the war in Iraq anyway, and he was not, I don't think he had talked about actively coming out and talking about it. He had talked to some of the soldiers about politics and, you know, different things. It was clear that he thought the war in Iraq was illegal. He'd said that to people. Um, And it did occur to us, because he was vocal, that maybe he had been killed deliberately. That crossed our minds. But as I said, I'm less and less inclined to believe that, and I don't know that we'd ever find a way of of proving that. And I think that... um, we can concentrate on the fact that there was a cover-up and maybe we can do something about that. So, You talked a bit about the, uh, the stresses of, of these wars on, our, on the young people who are serving, the multiple deployments, the uh, extended, uh, extended stays. A question comes in, should we institute a draft not only to meet recruitment needs but to make the government more accountable in addition to, of course, sharing the burden? Well, I don't like the idea of a draft necessarily, but I also think that um, I think it's it's actually in some ways healthier to have a draft because it, it'll it, the 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 public is is more in tune. Um, they're more likely to pay attention if their loved ones could possibly be sent, to, you know, into a situation like this. I mean, it sounds good that everyone would just volunteer. Um, on the other hand, I think the government should take its cue. If nobody's volunteering, maybe we should get out and just, and especially if there's so many, there really are a lot of fratricides. They keep saying there was like 40, 34 in these last, you know, four years or five years. And the numbers are much greater than that. And so if we're just sending our soldiers over to kill each other, then we should just fold it up. 
Here's a very uh, personal question from one of our audience members. How, how do you suggest that I console my girlfriend whose son died last week in Afghanistan? Oh, well, it's very hard to console someone. Um, the best thing I think you can do is know when to be there and when not to be there. And that's sometimes hard to gauge. Um, you, you, you need to be there to listen. Um, you need to be there to let her cry on your shoulder. Um, if she has to throw something across the room, you know, just back up. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, it, it's very difficult to console someone. It's a pain that you can't fix. It takes time. And, you know, just be patient and, you know, be loving. And remember, it's not about you right now. Because I think it's very hard for the partner or the whoever is around. It's like, you know, the person they're with is not in tune to them. And you just have to realize that they'll come back eventually. They'll come around. But you have to just remind yourself, it's not about me. I need to be here. I need to be a strong shoulder. Um, I think that's about all you can do. What do you think uh, Pat would think of our current military quote-unquote situation? He'd be very sad by it, saddened by it. I think he'd be very hurt. He'd be, he'd be terribly hurt and sad and, and probably angry at the way he was used. What's interesting is when Pat enlisted, the military tried to convince him to be a recruiter in Washington, D.C., and he said, absolutely not. He said, I would never try to talk any young person into enlisting. That's something that has to come from within. And he was really offended by that. And he actually talked to us and he talked to fellow soldiers about his concern that if something did happen to him, that they would use him. In fact, he, um, all the soldiers before they are, they, they are deployed and everything, they have to fill out all the documents indicating, you know, if they want to be buried, cremated. I mean, everything has to be laid out. So if something should happen to them, everything is in place. And he made a copy um, of all of his, you know, these documents and gave them to his wife and he's to make sure that they didn't try to give him a military funeral because he thought they would really exploit him if they did. And, you know, Pat was proud of serving, but he didn't think of himself as a military person. He thought of himself as Pat. And so he didn't want to be buried in a military service. But the military tried to convince my daughter-in-law that he wanted a military funeral. Um, so she, fortunately, she had the documents that he wanted to be cremated and, you know. To, to a certain extent, he was uh, seized on as a recruiting tool from the start, was he not? I yes. mean, do you hold the... Uh, the military, the administration accountable, or was it just the media that uh, grabbed onto what was really a remarkable story? Well, yeah, I think that, um, I, I think in the beginning, I think it was more probably the media bit when Pat didn't want to talk and he felt that he, you know, he was no different than anyone else. And I think the media was intrigued by that. So I think that that caused some stir, but that died down pretty quickly. I think that, um, when he died, though, I think the the administration and the military played a hand in that because I think they wanted to use Pat's death to deflect the other things that were happening in the month of April 2004, as I had mentioned earlier, and to sort of rally support or turn him into a martyr to rally support for what was going on in Iraq. Uh, I think it's I think it's really despicable because I know that um, in the Arizona Republic, there were editorials, there were letters sent in, young people saying, oh, I'm going to enlist, you know, because Pat enlisted, and he died. And, I, and it's like he would have just been sickened by that, that, that he'd been used that way. Of all the people that uh, you've talked about tonight, including uh, Defense Secretary uh, Donald Rumsfeld, who do you hold most culpable, most accountable for the cover-up? Well, I, I suppose it would have to be Donald Rumsfeld if he's at the top. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't let the other officers off the hook. In fact, um, this is really awful. There, there is a testimony in the documents, uh, a General Yellen. Uh, he was either a three- or four-star general. He's retired now, and now he's running some big corporation, I guess. But he um, indicated in his testimony, he, General Brown, you know, General Kensinger, they all indicated that they knew Pat's death was a suspected fratricide within 24 hours. And when General Jones, the third investigative officer, asked 
General Yellen what the tone in the chain of command was when they learned Pat's death was a fratricide. He said, well, it was like, here's the steak dinner, but we're giving it to you on a garbage can cover. You got it. You work it. In other words, to them, Pat's death was a positive thing to use to their advantage, but it was a fratricide. So they had to take this story and morph it to appeal to the public. What would you want to hear from the government now, now that you, what you've never learned and what really happened to your son? What would you want the government to say that could, could bring a sufficient conclusion to this? Well, I think that I would like for, you know, the, you know, for Congress or, you know, for them to be able to just determine who was responsible for the cover-up. I don't think that anyone in this administration or anyone in the military is going to just serve it up. (laughs) Um, But if they could actually, you know, if someone could find out who is responsible and definitely hold them accountable in some way. I I mean, it's not up to me to punish. I don't know what that would be. But I think that there's been so much lying, so much deception. And, you know, Congress is, you know, with Valerie Plain, Blackwater, all these things, they air it all out. But then there's no accountability. There's no closure. And that's what we're missing here is the closure. And, you know, we, we have these serious things that are taking place in, in, in the military and the government, yet they're, in, you know, investigating steroids in baseball. And, I mean, that's not a good thing, but it's, to me, that there's much more important issues right now than Roger Clemens and, you know, that stuff. And so that's very upsetting to me. I don't care if he concentrate, if they would concentrate on Blackwater, if they rather not deal with Pat, but concentrate on one of them, bring it to closure, and then hold someone accountable. Mary Tillman, author of Boots on the Ground by Dusk, my tribute to Pat Tillman. Her son, the NFL player, signed up with the Army in response to the 9-11 attacks. He died in Afghanistan in 2004. The Pentagon initially said that Pat Tillman died in an enemy ambush, but it was so-called friendly fire from his own men that killed him. His mother, Mary Tillman, spoke at the Commonwealth Club of California on May 19th. If you missed part of Mary Tillman's talk, or if you would just like to hear it again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. When you go there, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program, as well as those from previous programs. You may also search the Word for Word archives and hear speakers such as former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, fiasco author and journalist Thomas Ricks, and presidential candidates John McCain and Barack Obama. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word. For American Public Media, I'm Melinda Pencava. Word for Word is produced by Larissa Anderson and associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph with help from Suzanne Pico. The technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.